The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture this morning comes from Psalm chapter 6. For using the Black Pew Bible that's found on page 419. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm 6. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The word of the Lord. I've come back up to, um, you, again, if you're new here, um, this is Chance Newingham, and he is one of the men who we have been blessed with and who has been continuing to invest in to um, be one of the leaders here and just to preach the word this morning. And I know he's coming off a week of the flu, so that's um, something you can just be praying for his stamina and his strength, because I, brother, I can't even imagine prepping this week and being ill with the flu, so um, I'm going to pray for you, but Jonathan's gone this week, this is the last psalm that we're going to go through, and then we'll start um, a new study next week, but uh, I want to just pray with Chance and give him um, some protection as he proclaims the truth this morning to us, okay? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for my brother, I thank you the way that you are working in him, that you are continually crafting him, and the way that you have uniquely gifted him. Lord, that you would give him strength, um, increased strength this morning um, to to battle the fatigue that he has undoubtedly um, come under this week struggling with the flu. Lord, I thank you for his perseverance and his willingness to to come and to preach this morning um, in the midst of all this, that he has um, put his trust and faith in you. Lord, just use him to proclaimly to boldly proclaim your truth this morning and that you would give us ears to hear it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, Tom's Tom's right. This past week was pretty terrible. I feel like I had the the plague of 2020. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, It's not the coronavirus, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, When we got here, Louis said, why is that stool up there? And I said... And so your dad doesn't fall down. Um, so it's not usually my style to uh, 
preach sitting, but that's the way it's got to be. So, um, start off, I got a question for you. Do we have any fans of The Office here this morning? Yeah? Are there any people who just don't get it? They, they don't find it humorous? Okay, that's fine. Those first people will pray for those people who don't get it. Um, so in season two, there's an episode called Grief Counseling. Okay? That ring a bell for anybody? Grief Counseling? Well, as I prepared for today's sermon, I kept thinking about that episode, the episode of Grief Counseling. And here's why. The, the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, it's pretty dark and it's pretty depressing. David, in this psalm, he nearly loses all hope. Well, in that specific episode, Grief Counseling, it's pretty dark, it's pretty depressing. Michael, the main character, he nearly loses all hope. But things do get better at the, right at the end. So let me explain the episode to you real quick. So it starts off with um, Michael Scott, the, the, the boss on the office. He learns that his former boss, Ed Truck, has died in a terrible accident, okay? And um, the rest of the episode is Michael just trying to figure out how to cope with that grief and really him learning that he is unable to cope with that grief. And um, at one point in the episode, he describes his feelings by saying these words. He says, I lost Ed Truck, and it feels like somebody took my heart and dropped it into a bucket of boiling tears. And at the same time, somebody is hitting me in the soul with a sledgehammer. And then the third guy walks in and starts punching me in the grief bone. And I'm crying and no one can hear me because I'm terribly, terribly, terribly alone. It's hilarious, okay? <laughs> now, I not only, I don't think I can sit, I, I not only think that this episode uh, is funny, um, I not only like it because it's funny, but also because I think it begins to illustrate what David is going through in this specific psalm. You know, we laugh at Michael's grief in that psalm, but he, or in that, that, that text. <laughs> well, sort of, sort of. But he really was hurting. Well, we're going to see some similar ideas with David here in Psalm 6. So as you're turning there, pull it up on your smartphone, in the Pew Bible, whatever you're going to do, I want to set the stage for you. There are three things that I think we need to focus on before we actually jump into the psalm itself. If we get these three things, if, if we wear these three lenses as we begin to dive in, I think we're going to be good to go. And the first thing is this. We need to understand the category of this psalm. In the book of Psalms, you can find all different types of psalms. There are lament psalms and wisdom psalms, praise psalms, all kinds of psalms. Well, Psalm 6, where we find ourselves this morning, it is a pentennial psalm or a penance psalm. Well, what's that mean? Well, that's just a fancy way of saying that in this psalm, the author is full of regret and sorrow for his own sins and failures. You see, in this psalm, David is admitting his sin. He's recognizing that the only way that he can be made right is through divine forgiveness. So a, a pentennial psalm, our psalm for today, in short, is this. The psalmist is saying, God, I've done wrong. I know that I've done wrong. 
I'm sorry, and the only way that that wrong can be undone is with your help. Please, Father, help me. That's the first thing. Second thing we need to understand is the nature of this psalm. Because of some of the imagery and wording that we will encounter, many people believe that David was suffering from a bodily illness or bodily sickness when he wrote this specific chapter. And to that end, use physical pain as metaphors for spiritual suffering. And that could be the case here. But I think, along with a lot of other commentators, that David is describing some sort of physical pain here. And you'll see why when we jump into the text. Third thing we need to understand is this, the tone of this psalm. It's only 10 verses, kind of a a short psalm. But seven of those 10 verses, they are very dark. They are very disturbing and they are very depressing. That is the overall tone of this chapter. Agony defined every moment of every day for David as he was writing this specific text. But then in verse 8, that all changed. God heard his prayer, hope was infused, and life was different. So, now that we've covered those three introductory ideas, I want to tell you where we're going to be going. If I were to break this psalm up into an outline... This is what I would do. So verses 1 through 5, I would call that David's appeal. He's appealing to God. God, please help me. Verses 6 and 7 then would be David's anguish. And then verses 8 through 10 would be David's answer. And last thing before we jump in. Um, So this psalm would have originally been sung in its entirety. Okay? And probably accompanied by an eight-string instrument. And so, uh, for the rest of our time together this morning, I'm going to sing my sermon to you. (laughs) Absolutely not. Uh, You don't have to worry about that. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I'm confident that it will speak to us no matter what season we're in. Maybe we have already endured anguish. Maybe we have yet to endure anguish. Either way, I pray that we would run to you and your word for comfort. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so part one, David's appeal. Verse one, it reads this way. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So first things first, David admits his guilt. He's done something wrong. Now, the text doesn't tell us what he did wrong. We learn, though, that David did something wrong. He readily acknowledged that he needed to be rebuked and disciplined for something. Here's what's interesting to me, though, at this point. David is asking, he's begging God in an act of mercy, please hold back the rebuke that I deserve. I know that I deserve this, but please hold it back. In my mind, it's sort of like David saying, God, listen, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done wrong. And I'm pleading with you. Will you please show me leniency? One author summarized it kind of in a clever way. I thought this was interesting. He said that God was simultaneously David's greatest threat and David's greatest hope. I like that. David's greatest threat and his greatest 
hope. David here in this psalm, he's in a heap of trouble. And it would either be God who condemned him or God who pardoned him. So he throws himself down at the throne and says, God, I've done wrong. Will you spare me? David continues this bleak picture in verse 2. He wrote, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. So here's David's response where it moves from negative, um, yeah, negative to positive to negative. So in verse 1, he says, Lord, please don't punish me. That's the negative. And then he goes positive in verse 2. Instead, please be gracious to me. Heal me. And then in verse 3, he swings back to the negative. For my bones are troubled. Now, if we're going to understand this psalm, we really need to understand, and I don't think this is an over-exaggeration to say, the nightmarish language that David used. And specifically, he uses two phrases here. He wrote, I am languishing and my bones are troubled. And if we're going to understand what David was feeling here, what he was going through, and inevitably what God would bring him through, we need to understand those two phrases. So the first one, I am languishing. You know, I was thinking about it. I don't even know that I've ever used that word except in preparation for this sermon. So it's, it's, it's not something that's really that common today. But in David's world, it would have been a word that was familiar to his people. And for them, it would have brought up mental pictures of terror. And I'm not talking about like just being a tiny bit afraid, you know, where you, you hear a door creak or something like that. No, I'm talking about being terrified. We're talking terror to your core, terror to the point where you lose your senses, terror to the point where you lose control of your bowels. That is, I'm languishing. Imagine if your life is slipping out of your hand. It's falling between your fingers and you don't have the strength And you're so terrified that you cannot even close your fist to keep it. That's languishing. And then on top of that, he used the phrase, my bones are troubled. Here, David is describing some sort of physical agony. Okay, This is where many believe that David is referring to some sort of physical pain. Pain from an illness. And just like the word languishing that we just talked about, there is a very real sense of terror here, a suffocating fear that life is almost gone. David thought he was about to be undone. He couldn't take it anymore, so he asks God for help, and he continues with this plea in verse 3. Look at verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Now this phrase, my soul is greatly troubled, you know, we read that and we're like, oh, okay, he's having a really bad day. It's more than that. It is raw with emotion. If you go to the New Testament, specifically John 12, 27, right before Jesus is about to be crucified. The crucifixion is about to be set in motion. You know, his friends are going to abandon him. He's going to be beaten almost into the point of death. He's going to sweat blood. What does he say? 
my soul is greatly troubled. He quotes Psalm 6 here. My soul is greatly troubled. So what Jesus was experiencing in those moments before the cross is similar to what David was experiencing here in Psalm 6. And then David followed up this soul imagery, this center of his being imagery, with this question. This question that I would imagine that most of us have asked at some point in life. How long? God, how long? How long must I suffer? How long must this go on? How long... must I endure? David realized that the only way that he was going to be healed, the only way that he would get hope and relief was from God. You know, this part of the passage is so interesting to me. It's almost as if David lets an accusation slip out. My soul also is greatly troubled. Lord, how long? How long are you going to wait? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you working? My wife and I, Ginger, uh, we can relate very much to this text. For those of you who don't know our family, we have four sons two adopted, two biological. Nosko, our oldest, he's adopted. He's from Bulgaria. He's 13 years old. He has a variety of of special needs. Um, He's autistic. He suffers from PTSD. He's violent. He's impulsive. And, And frankly, he's dangerous. And so dangerous, in fact, that he can't live at home. He has to live in, in Rockford at a group home, and then we get to go up and see him as a family. Nosko spent the first five years of his life at an orphanage in Bulgaria before he came home to live with us, and we were so excited. You know, Ginger and I, we couldn't, couldn't have a baby, and um, we, you know, we went from parents, I think it was a Monday, we went from being like not a parent on a Monday to like a Tuesday being a parent of a special needs five-year-old. We were so excited and just so happy, you know, it was a long process. Once he got home, we started to get glimpses into the... (coughs) the horror of what his life had been before he came home. As best he could, he communicated to us what life was like for him while he was in the orphanage. He acted out to us. He showed us how he was regularly slapped in the face and all over the body, how caregivers would poke him in the eyes, and hit him with wooden spoons. They would pinch at him and scream at him. And much worse that I'm not even going to bring up. There was one caregiver in particular. Her name is Coca. She was particularly mean to Nosco. He was terrified of her. Even though we lived thousands of miles away, 
even the very mention of her name would send him reeling. She had tormented him for so long, and for Nosco, fear and coca had become one and the same. They were synonymous with one another. And I can't tell you how many times Ginger and I prayed David's prayer here. We would say, God, Nosco is greatly troubled. God, Nosco is languishing. How long? How long before you act? God, what are you waiting for? Why won't you heal him? We totally get what David was feeling. And I imagine that there have been situations in your life where you can say the same. David's plea, it crawls on in verse 4. It reads this way. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Here, David asks God to change his direction in a sense. He uses the word turn. David is saying, he's like, God, listen, instead of rightly punishing me, which you are totally within the bounds of of doing because I have done wrong things, please turn from discipline and rescue me. And when he says this, David says, I've got one piece of evidence as to why you should do this thing that I've asked. It is your steadfast love. Now, this phrase, steadfast love, again, it's like languishing. It's not something we really use that often here. But in Hebrew, it's this little word that has a a bunch of beautiful meaning to it. It's this little word, hesed. And it's kind of all of these ideas rolled in together, okay? It means this. Hesed is the, and this is God's love towards us, it is the constant passionate, overflowing, relentlessly pursuing, extravagant, limitless, trustworthy, and merciful love of God. So by using this phrase, steadfast love, David was grounding his cry for help in who God was. He was saying, God, it is in your makeup to rescue. It is in your DNA to save. So Lord, please come. And, you know, as David was praying this prayer, I imagine he was reflecting back on all the instances of God's faithfulness in the past, all the instances when God had shown him love, and that was giving him confidence then to pray that prayer at that moment and giving him confidence then to go forward in the future. Next in verse 5, we see David continue to beg for help, but this, at this point he does so by doing something kind of interesting. He points at the grave. Look at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. David's strategy here, it's kind of an interesting one. He says, God, if I'm dead, I'm not going to be able to sing to you anymore. But you know what? If you make me well, I'll be able to sing. Some people, you know, I was reading different commentaries and stuff, and they were saying that uh, David was being kind of gutsy here with this argument. You know, like, hey, I'm a pretty good singer. You're not going to be able to hear that anymore. Well, I, 
I, I see what they're saying. Okay, I, 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 I get that. But I think more than that, um, I think David, I don't, I don't think he's trying to haggle with God. I think he's just contrasting life and death, the reality of life and death here, okay? David's stating the fact, he's like, listen, if I'm dead, my audible song will be no more. But if you get me out of this, if you heal me, my song and my praises and my worship, they will go on. Now, something else to note here, David references Sheol. What is that? Well, you could spend an entire sermon series on that word alone. As I was preparing, Ginger reminded me that she took an entire semester-long class on that one word, Sheol. We're not going to do that. You're welcome. Um, For us, for our purposes today, the explanation that we need is this. Sheol is the grave. It's death. And in the ancient Hebrew mind, Sheol, that was it. No afterlife. You're done. Something that we need to remember as New Testament believers, though, there is the resurrection. But for them, the idea of the resurrection, that didn't come later. So for David and his people, death was final. It was the end. And David is like, you know, you think about playing poker. He's showing all of his cards here. He's saying, if you want to hear my praises, God, and I want to continue to praise you, you've got to keep me alive. These are the cards that I've got. Next in verses 6 and 7, the mood of the psalm grows dire still. And it's at this point where David's prayer fades out. Look at verse 6. He said, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I am drenched with my... I drenched my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So picture David here, you know, their beds, they didn't totally look like ours. They're sort of like a recliner. I don't know what that thing's called, but you lay down on it. I have flu brain. Chase lounge. Yes, thank you, people. So that's sort of what their beds look like. So imagine David laying down on that. It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black. And he should be sleeping, but he's weeping uncontrollably. His bed is literally wet with tears. And he's moaning and he's groaning because of the pain. And the text doesn't say that this is once in a while. The text clearly says Every night. And so again, I got to ask the question. Have you been there? Have you been in your bed late at night? Weeping. Have you been in your bed in the early hours of the morning? Motionless yet wrestling. Has your pillow been wet? Have you been hurting to your core? Feeling like all hope is gone? Ginger and I spent many nights like that. We were wrecked over our fear and anxiety with NOSCO. 
we cried and we cried and we cried and we cried and we cried until there were no more tears. It was a really hopeless and helpless place to be. David used this phrase, this is so interesting, he used the phrase, I am weary. We read that and we're like, oh, you know, like tired, a little worn out. No, in Hebrew, this phrase means like you've worked a full 12-hour day of back-breaking work. And then you're done. But David isn't saying that he's weary from a 12-hour day of back-breaking work. He's weary from the crying. He's weary from the moaning. He has nothing left in the tank. He's done. We also learn in this verse that David's eyes were wasting away, that they were failing. Now, you might think that they're failing because of all the weeping that he's doing, but the structure of the Hebrew here tells us that his eyes were failing for some reason because of his enemies. And it's at this point in chapter 6 that this nefarious character, these bad guys, are introduced. And it's also here that the Lord answers his plea. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord answers my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Who are David's enemies? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. I'm sorry. Maybe the important question is, why are these people David's enemies? And I think that question's a little more easily answered. Most commentators believe that these people mentioned here are David's foes because they were taunting him. You think about the context. They were saying to him, your God will not forgive you. Remember, that's what he's asking for in the first few verses. Your God won't forgive you. Your God will never forgive you. You aren't worthy of that. You don't deserve that. You see, these people, whoever they were, they were David's enemies because they were aggravating his suffering. They were telling him that he did not deserve God's grace. But God answered David. God heard his weeping and God's response was coming. God would offer forgiveness to David and God would deal appropriately with the enemies. I really like the way that the Hebrew is structured in this section. Right here, it's going to appear behind me up on the, the screen. There, there's almost a rhythm to it here. And I, I, I don't know, I just find comfort in this. It, it says this, He hears Yahweh, the sound of my weeping. He hears Yahweh, my lament. Yahweh, my prayers will receive. Did you notice in verse 10 that David was speaking about faith in the future? He said, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. These words of shall show that he is speaking about the future. Victory had not come yet, but David was already confident that his prayer would be answered. 
Something else that's really cool to me about this passage, God answered David's prayer, I feel like in sort of a poetic and justified way. The shame and trouble that David experienced at the beginning of the psalm is what his enemies experience at the end of the psalm. God is faithful. I love what Jonathan said several weeks ago. Praise be to God that he strikes and breaks the wicked. And finally, do you remember verse 3 when David said, O Lord, how long? Here we see that the wait was over. David received mercy, and his enemies experienced judgment and disgrace. All right, so to close our time together, uh, I've got just five points of application for you. Um, This is what I want you to, to take home from. From this passage, and the the first one is this, and it is, read the Psalms. Now, that may sound like a funny point of application, um, but we're finishing up the Psalms study, and um, there's a whole bunch more Psalms left. Um, Here's why I include this point. For many years, for me in my Christian walk, I stayed away from the Psalms. I remember reading them and thinking, like, good night, all these people do is complain all the time. They're such whiners. And that actually caused me to, I mean, you read this passage and you're like, womp, womp, You know, it's pretty terrible, right? And so I, I actually stayed away from the book for a while. You know, it's sort of like a, you've got a depressing or negative friend that anytime they're together, they just like drag you down or whatever. You know, I was thinking about that. Um, you know, you may say like, well, I took my kids to the, to the zoo and they got to pet a dolphin and it was totally awesome and they loved it. This person says, well, you know, 6.2 million dolphins die every second and there was a whale blubber in that hamburger that you ate. And you're like, we were bored and we went to the zoo. That's what I feel like sometimes when I read the Psalms. But, but, but my view, that view changed when I read this psalm, okay, in preparation to share this text with you guys. What I've come to realize is this, I had no right. I had no right. The entire Bible is inspired. This is God's word for his people. It is authoritative. And yes, the psalmists do complain and lament a lot. But check it out. What if that's because the world that they lived in was very different than ours and they had the right to do so? The world that they lived in, it was constantly, forever filled with war, plague, famine, high infant mortality rate, death by age 40. And that was the good times. In the bad times, the really bad times, all of that stuff was still there, but it was magnified by 10. There was drought. There was famine. And you could expect to live to the ripe old age of 18. Maybe the psalmist complained or lamented a lot because the world that they lived in was truly a difficult place to be. And I don't have that right to take away from them. More than that, though, what if they complained and lamented a lot because they looked at the world around them and they saw that none of it was right? The world that God had created had gone off course. There was suffering, pain, injustice, oppression, and death. And they looked around and they said, this is not right. Something is wrong. And they cried out for help. 
This is where we've got to give the psalmist credit. I found myself in this place today, and I've seen other Christians do it too, where we look around at how evil the world is and all the terrible things that are going on, and we're like, well, it is a godless world. I guess life is pretty terrible here, so what do we expect? Rather than crying out and saying, no, that is injustice. It should not be that way. The psalmists, they sensed this wrongness and they begged God to reestablish order. I think that's why they felt the freedom to say, God, why? God, how long? God, why haven't you acted? Why are you waiting? And I think we can learn from that. The psalmist knew that the world in which we live is not the world in which God intended. It's broken and it's in need of help, divine help. And the psalmist was not afraid to ask. Read the Psalms, number one. Number two, sin will be judged. We see that early on here in, in verse one. David readily recognized that he had sin in his life. And then in verses eight through 10, his enemies, they received shame and trouble. They too were judged. This should remind us that our sin will be judged. So I wanna ask you, are you willing to admit your sin? Do you recognize sin in yourself? Do you admit it? And then do you go and seek forgiveness? A lot of people have little kiddos here. When you wrong your daughter, do you pull her aside and say, sweetheart, I'm so sorry about earlier. I overreacted. I was mad about something else, but I took it out on you. I yelled at you, and I'm sorry. And more than that, then, do you go to a quiet place and do you pray and do you say, God, I failed. You entrusted this sweet little girl to me. And I overreacted. I lack gentleness. God, please, please, Grow me in this. Or when it comes to husbands and wives, wives, are you willing to pull your husband aside and say, honey, listen, I owe you an apology. I've been chatting with an old friend, an old crush on Facebook from high school, and it's wrong and it's stupid. I know that I shouldn't have done it. I stopped, I deactivated my account. Uh, my account. I'm not doing it anymore. I want you to know that I love you and I cherish you. And then are you willing to go to a quiet place and say, God, you've been so gracious to me by giving me this man. And what do I do? I follow the idols of my heart. God, may I be content. Friends, this psalm teaches us that our sin will be judged. Therefore, we must confess it to those that we've wronged and to God. Third thing is this. When you suffer, run to God. So this is kind of a, a big deal here. This next sentence. When you suffer, I can't tell you one way or another if you are experiencing this suffering because of something that you have done or if it's something God is bringing upon you. You understand the difference there? Okay, when you are experiencing suffering, I can't tell you if God brought that suffering upon you or if you are suffering because of bad choices that you made that led to that. I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is this. Either way, run to God. It doesn't matter if it's your fault or circumstances that were out of your control. It doesn't matter. Run to God.
It's what David did here. We don't know. Maybe he brought this situation upon himself. We don't know. But what we do know is this. He ran to his father. You know, I was trying to think about it in like a practical way. And I was thinking, okay, let's say that I'm at home and I come into the living room and immediately I'm greeted by my youngest son, Walter. And he's crying and behind him I see his two big brothers. You know, Nosco doesn't live at home with us. I see Lewis and Edward there. I see Ginger a little further back, and when Walter sees me, he really turns it on, you know, like the tears really start gushing, and he holds his hand up, and he wants his dad to hold him, right? So at that point in, the, in that made-up situation, if I had to guess why he's crying, I've got two guesses, okay? One, one of his brothers tripped him. Kids think it is hilarious to trip other kids. It is. <laughs> when it's other people's kids. But, so they think it's hilarious. Just walk by and give them a little push, stick their leg out. And so in, my, in this made-up situation, I'm like, okay, Walter's crying because he got tripped. Or he's crying because mama gave him a little rap on the hand because he keeps trying to jam that hand down in the toilet. Okay? So in that situation, Walter is totally upset. He's beside himself. He's lost it. I don't know. Is it because of something that was done to him? Or is it because of a consequence of his own behavior? I don't know. But what we can learn from Walter is this. Run to your father when you're in trouble. Doesn't matter if you got yourself in that situation. Doesn't matter if the circumstances were beyond your control. Either way, you need your dad's help. So you run to him. Fourth thing is this. The Lord hears your weeping, your prayers, your pleas, and your prayers. You know, God heard David's prayers. There were moments in the psalm when God appeared to be silent. But the end of the psalm teaches us that even in that silence, we have to readily admit there is silence, that God was listening in and working. So here's the way I see it, okay? We are to pray. And, and God will hear our prayers and he will answer our, our prayers. Sometimes he'll answer our prayers in the way that we want them to, way, way that we want him to. You know, we are sick and we say, God, please help us. Please deliver my family. Make us well. And then God makes us well. Okay, sometimes God answers prayers like that. And we are to pray and thank God and, and give him glory for meeting that need. But here's the other side of the coin. He may answer our prayer. The answer might be No. Or the answer might be him doing something entirely different than what we've been praying. And we have to be at the place where we are satisfied in that. Where we are not bitter. Where we are not full of resentment. We say, God, I, I praise you for the answer that you gave. Even though it might not be what I asked for, I know that you are good and you know best. So I will rest in whatever you give. And this brings us perfectly to our last point. Number five is this. God may not deliver you from the thing that you are praying and weeping about right now. But through Jesus, he has delivered you from what matters most. Friends, every one of us, we deserve separation and hell. 
This is what we have earned. God would be completely justified if that judgment is what he handed down to us. But thanks be to God for his graciousness. Thanks be to God for his mercy. Thanks be to God that he made a way for us to be delivered. And that way is through Jesus. He is our grand substitute. He died on the cross in our place. It should have been us who hung there. But he said, no, Father, I'll take their place. I'll take their, your wrath so that they might be seen as righteous. You know, this conclusion, number five, it brings so much comfort to, to Ginger and I because we readily acknowledge that on this side of heaven, it appears that God will not heal Nosco. But through Jesus, God will heal him for what matters most. And the same is true for you. God may not deliver you from the thing that you are weeping and praying about right now, that thing that is tearing you up inside, that thing that you have wrestled with for years, or that thing that is in your future that you will wrestle with for a long time. God may not take that away. He may not heal it. But he has healed you from what matters most. God, one of the beautiful things about your word is that it speaks life to people in a variety of situations. No matter where we are, each one of us have different areas of darkness in our life, different areas of struggle, yet your word, Psalm 6, speaks to it here. God, help us to hold on. Help us to raise our gaze and fix it upon you. Knowing that while we may not be relieved of what plagues us most here on this side of heaven, you have through your son Jesus done the thing that matters most. Offered us salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.